Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look at the Canada Pavilion at Epcot. We'll walk around, we'll take a look around and see what's what, and uh, kind of explore the uh, area. So as before, I'll break this up and I'll give an overview, talk about the buildings, designs, and architecture, then move on to talk about the grounds, outdoor gardens, and displays you'll see around. I'll then head inside and talk about all of the inside displays and shopping. Afterward, I'll tell you about the character entertainment and things you'll find, and characters and kids stuff, and all the good stuff that you find. And I'll end with dining options and drinking around the world. And finally, I'll give you some details on what either was planned for the pavilion, but never made it, or is planned for the future. Now, this is the fifth in a series of podcasts I've created to look at the World Showcase portion of Epcot. If you want to hear more, check out my show notes page for links to each of the other podcasts. So far, I've covered an overview of the World Showcase pavilions, Japan, Germany, and Mexico. And you can check those all out at your leisure. Now, as you heard on my Mexico podcast, Disney took a sort of a whimsical look at the map. And if you stand in the American Adventure and face Japan, Mexico is sort of behind you or below you, and Canada is in front of you or sort of above you. It's a representation of their locations relative to the United States. So Canada is to your right as you enter from Future World, and it's another of the opening day pavilions at Epcot. Now, unlike Mexico, Canada was not immediately considered for World Showcase. But in the mid-1970s, as Disney thought about which pavilions might make sense, they did consider Canada. After all, it's about 80% of Canada's trade is with the United States, so it would make sense to have Canada be a pavilion at World Showcase. But there was a catch. Unlike the other pavilions, Disney actually sought financial support for the attraction from the Canadian government in order to bring it together. The company wanted Canada's federal government to fund the cost of building the attraction. In return, the government would have input into the design and layout. The Canadian government was a little bit concerned about the stereotype of Canada that Disney wanted, sort of that 1970s view of lumberjacks, moose, and people saying, eh. And they declined at that point. Now, there was apparently a lot of friendly back and forth with Disney threatening to pull the plug on Canada, but ultimately, they went ahead without the money from the Canadian government. Instead, Disney got a few Canadian businesses to sponsor some elements of the attraction, and that's how they were able to build it and have it ready for opening day. As it was originally envisioned, the pavilion was to have been divided into two halves, separated by a main street of shops and restaurants. One side would represent French Canada, and the other side would have been English-speaking Canada. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Canada's rich cultural heritage, here's a quick primer. The country was first settled by the French in the early 1700s, but in 1763, Great Britain took control. Before the British, French was the official language, and after the British moved in, English was the official language. 
Now, there was a bit of a dichotomy in the language and culture. Then in 1867, the British North America Act united English-speaking Upper Canada, or Ontario, and French-speaking Lower Canada, or Quebec, with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick in a self-governing confederation. Today, about 28% of the population are of British descent, 23 are from French descent, with most of the French population still concentrated in Quebec. The rest of the population includes about 2% Aboriginal people, with the remainder a mix of immigrants from around the world. Now, we'll get more into that part of it in just a moment, but first, let's take a look at the outside part of the pavilion. As you stand on the promenade, turn around and look at the World Showcase Lagoon. This area was designed to resemble the rugged Canadian eastern seaboard. There are some who say this area resembles the Bay of Fundy, an amazing natural space that experiences extreme changes in the tidal region. That is, the greatest tide change in the world occurs in the Bay of Fundy. Burnt Coat Head in the Minas Basin, Nova Scotia, has the greatest mean range of around 15 meters or over 50 feet from high tide to low tide. Now, I can't say for sure that that's the case, but it sure does evoke the essence of the bay, so perhaps Disney's vision is inspired by it in some way. Now, looking at the fence as you look out there, don't miss the fact that the maple leaf, the national symbol of Canada, are carved into every other plank on the fence. Now let's go back to the original idea of the two-part pavilion, with the distinct French and British parts. Now, as you may have heard me say on several of the podcasts about Epcot, many, many times, the designs of World Showcase were fairly fluid throughout the design cycle. At some point, Disney decided to augment their idea of two distinct parts and make it a three-part, including the Aborigines in their design. The Aboriginal people of Canada's northwest coast, specifically the First Nations tribe, were selected to represent the indigenous tribes of Canada. Their thousand-mile stretch of homeland, bordered by the Pacific Ocean to the west and the Rocky Mountains to the east, isolated them from the rest of the country. In their isolation, they became artisans and craftsmen. So the two-part design that was proposed isn't exactly the design that exists today. Or is it? If you look carefully at the pavilion, it is there in a very subtle way. Stand at the front near the stairs. To your right is a more French-influenced culture, and to your left is a more British cultural influence almost like a colonial outpost. But the aboriginal part of the country is also represented in front of both areas. And again, Imagineers showed a little whimsy here. Looking at the pavilion from the air, orienting it so the lagoon is on your left, you can see it as the 1867 British Act indicated. The upper English-speaking portion would be on top, the French-speaking part would be on the bottom, and then the aborigines they selected, being on the Pacific coast, would be on the left. Gotta love all the thought that goes into it. This is entirely intentional. Now, at the base of the stairs, representation of the Aborigines' handiwork can first be seen along the promenade. And there's also other displays of snowshoes, kayaks, and other Aboriginal items, including masks and many more things. And I mentioned stairs. Let me talk about those stairs for just a minute. That's one of the more interesting elements in the design. None of the other pavilions are elevated, yet Canada has a huge staircase that leads up from the promenade. Why is that? It's because much of Canada is in the Rockies, and the idea was to represent that fact and make it appear higher than any of its surroundings. Now, as you make your way up the stairs, look at the three totem poles on display. This is also an art form peculiar to the Pacific Northwest. The meanings of the designs on the totem poles vary, and they can recount familiar legends, clan lineages, or notable events in history. Now, in the early years of Epcot, all three totem poles were made of fiberglass. But in 1998, Alaskan artist David Baxley carved a real totem pole out of wood as performance art, 
Upon its completion, it replaced the existing pole that sat adjacent to the shops. The story of this new pole tells of the raven who tricks the Sky Chief into releasing the sun, the moon, and the stars from its chest. So as you walk up the stairs, take a look at each of the totem poles. Now let's turn our attention to the right side, or the French side. The mansard-roofed, Victorian-style Hotel du Canada appears almost as the centerpiece of the exhibit. It was inspired by Chateau Laurier, a historic hotel found in Ottawa, and is influenced by French architecture. Now, the namesake hotel was commissioned by the Grand Trunk Railway and was constructed between 1909 and 1912 in tandem with Ottawa's downtown Union Station. Hotels like these were built all across Canada as the railroads pushed westward around the turn of the 19th and into the 20th century. To promote passenger ridership and business, Lines like the Grand Trunk Railway, Canadian National Railway, and the Canadian Pacific Railway established a series of first-class resort hotels along their routes. Many of these hotels do not exist today, and those that do now belong to hostelry chains like the Fairmont, the Westin, and others like that. Disney did place the Canadian National Hotel's emblem on the hotel to lend it some authenticity. So when you're standing at the hotel, look for the plaque and you'll see that it actually is a representation of the Canadian National Hotels because it does represent what they're all about. The architectural style used on the Hotel du Canada is Chateau. The term refers to the French country homes, Chateau, built in Lou Valley from the late 15th century to the early 17th century. The style is noted for elaborate towers, spires, and steeply pitched roofs. You often hear Imagineers talk about forced perspective. This is the technique of making an object or structure appear larger than it actually is. The Hotel du Canada is an excellent example of this trickery of the eye. The actual structure is only three stories high, yet it appears to be seven. The first trick was to place the building on a hill. This truly does add height to the hotel. The stones, that are actually made of fiberglass, are larger at the bottom and continue to get smaller as you look up the hotel. And also, the other decorative items, such as windows and other things, do the same thing. They start out as larger at the bottom and work their way up and getting smaller. So it's a remarkable thing that Disney is able to do with that forced perspective, because it really does look like it's maybe seven stories tall. So if we turn around and look at the British side on the left, the buildings are of an English stonehouse design and are patterned after those found in the maritime provinces of Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. As you look around, you'll find a rugged stone building said to be modeled after a famous landmark near Niagara Falls and reflecting Britain's influence on Canada. The first English settlement in the Maritimes was in Halifax, and more precisely, it was actually Scottish. The style and construction methods that developed into this region are very close in architectural style to that found in New England, as the trade links between these two areas was close and the topography was similar. The New England and Maritime provinces are mountainous and rocky. Early settlers used what was on hand to build their homes and shops, and in the case of the northern eastern seaboard, stones filled that need. If you look up a picture of a structure that you would find in Nova Scotia, you'll find that it's very similar to the Epcot counterpart. Now let's talk about the grounds and gardens. Canada hosts the largest and most labor-intensive garden in all of the World Showcase pavilions. It's known as Victoria Gardens. It was designed to remind guests of a Canadian outdoors. It includes a canyon, a waterfall, gardens, a pool with fountains, and totem poles. The Victoria Gardens were inspired by the famous Butchart Gardens near Victoria, British Columbia. The real gardens are named after Robert Butchart, a Portland cement magnate, who in 1904 moved to British Columbia and built a cement factory. After years of digging out the limestone, his factory left an eyesore of a pit. Not wanting to leave the area in such condition, he had tons and tons of soil hauled into the pit and eventually turned it into a garden paradise with trees, flowers, and grasses. 
So the Victoria Gardens at Epcot is meant to evoke memories of that. Now, a stand of maple trees has been planted adjacent to the garden in honor of the country's national symbol. The landscaping also represents a variety of themes. Evergreen and deciduous plants create a northern theme. Elaborate floral displays are part of the Victorian gardens, and the plantings in the rockwork form the backdrop for the area. You might call the garden a little bit whimsical. It features a small cottage, a quaint pond, gently sweeping green hills, and plenty of beautiful flowers. Now stop in the gardens to take photos and enjoy the views. Of course, if you happen to go during the Epcot International Flower and Garden Festival, you'll see that it's even more adorned and even more beautiful than it is for the rest of the year. Not to say it isn't beautiful the rest of the year, but they do even more with it when it comes time for the Flower and Garden Festival. So you may ask yourself, how do you show a Canadian winter in Florida? Disney horticulturalists plant all-white flowers during winter months to give the appearance of snow on the ground. As spring approaches, white flowers remain in the shaded areas to look like lingering snow and are replaced in central areas with colors. That is truly amazing. That's really taking it to the next level and, and really kind of evoking the thought of what Canada is really like. But it's more than the elaborate garden. Remember how I said the stairs are meant to represent the climb toward the Rocky Mountains? Well, if you move to the back of the pavilion, you'll get a sense of its majesty. The Rocky Mountain sections appears in the back and was created using forced perspective as well. The plants at the bottom are much bigger than the ones at the top. In fact, the higher you go, the smaller the plants. This makes it look like the Rockies are larger and taller than they really are in this representation of Canada and Epcot. Now, at the very rear of the pavilion, toward the right, is a massive rock formation at the base of the Rockies, with a beautiful 30-foot waterfall cascading over the surface. The waterfall then bubbles down below and gently drifts its way towards the pond in the Victoria Gardens. Guests love posing near the waterfall for a picture, which looks kind of like it was actually taken in the wilderness of Canada and not in the Central Florida theme park. And by the way, it's really cool and quiet, and it's a nice place to relax, especially in the heat of summer. So kind of keep that in mind if you happen to be in Epcot during the summer. The beauty of Canada really shines through in every part of this pavilion, except, somewhat ironically, to the entrance to O Canada. Now that's the show I'll talk about shortly. The entrance is located in a darkish tunnel. Now I've heard people say that it would be a lot more pleasant to wait for the movie outside surrounded by the luscious foliage than standing in a drab dark tunnel. But don't simply assume this is an oversight or unintentional. The inside of the movie queue area represents a mine specifically the maple leaf mine, previously known as the Moosehead Mine. As always, the detail is amazing, with shovels and picks and all sorts of mining tools on the rustic wood walls. There's even an old-time timer, which tells guests the time till the next show. It represents another facet of Canada and works in this regard. It really does come together. So let's talk about shopping. There are three shops on the upper level of the Canada Pavilion. The first is called the Northwest Mercantile and pays homage to the French and English trappers, prospectors, loggers, and traders that helped open the vast western sections of Canada. If you pay attention while browsing in this store, you'll find equipment necessary for surviving in the harsh environment of Canada's wilderness. You'll see things there that were the stock and trade of wilderness outposts during the frontier days. Inside, you'll find Kitrus art glass. These ornaments are handmade in Canada to resemble one of the Four Seasons. The store offers Hatley clothing, Roots fragrances, and athletic wear, Duville perfume, ice wines, body care items, and Canadian hockey gear. Christmas ornaments depicting woodland creatures are also found here. 
maple products abound at the trading post. You can find syrup, candies, tea, and cookies. If you're looking for handmade native jewelry, this is the store. You can find O Canada, made on Prince Edward Island, and Montague, made in the British Columbia. Other souvenirs include maplefoot babies, stuffed animals, boma totem poles, and faux raccoon and skunk skin caps. Next door is the Trading Post, which is designed to look like a traditional West Coast native longhouse. Here, the Native American culture that thrived in Canada before the arrival of the Europeans is exhibited. The building duplicates the ads-hewn log structure and used by the ancient people. Inside, more totem poles and paintings are on display. The merchandise sold in both of these shops is a collection of stereotypical Canadian souvenirs and useful items that can be used in real life. The third shop is La Boutique des Provinces, located in the Hotel du Canada, which sells Anne of the Green Gables gifts, Blue Mountain pottery, along with various handcrafted souvenirs. On the lower level, there's the wood cart, located on the promenade, and it sells a variety of wine-themed merchandise, animal plush, fl- <clears throat> animal plush toys, animal plush toys, flags, and other assorted goods. The cart also features an engraving stand where guests can have their names engraved onto genuine leather bracelets. So let's move on and talk about other things to do and see in Canada. Outside the pavilion, closer to the United Kingdom, there's a stage where regular performances are held. At the opening in 1982, the original musical talent for the Canada Pavilion was a trio called the Caledonian Pipe Band, consisting of two pipers and one drummer. The performers were Robert Proctor, he was the lead drummer, Kenneth Mouchin, the piper, and Robert Mouchin, also a piper. They were recruited by Ron Rodriguez, the talent coordinator for Walt Disney World, from another place called Rosie O'Grady's that was in downtown Orlando. Because all three had ties to Scotland, they also performed in the British Pavilion at various times. Now, they retired at some point, and more recently, a Celtic rock band performed in the space. Interestingly, one of the main instruments used in the band was the bagpipes. Off Kilter was the name of the band, and they were enormously popular, but they were finally retired at the end of September 2014, much to the dismay of their loyal fans. They'd been there for a very long time, and people looked forward to planning some of their time in Epcot to actually watch Off Kilter.
The band members were all dressed in traditional kilts, the dress of the men and boys in, Sc- in the Scottish Highlands of the 16th century. Since the 19th century, it's been become associated with the wider culture of Scotland in general, or with Celtic or Gaelic heritage. Last year, a Canadian lumberjack show did a demonstration, which is funny in a way because it's exactly what the Canadian government feared. But that show only lasted a short time, and now it's been replaced. The new offering is known as Trad Nation, a musical family ensemble that will introduce guests to a taste of the rich French-Canadian heritage of Quebec. The ensemble group is composed of musicians, singers, and dancers, and during their sets they'll perform in Quebecois tradition, showcasing not only traditional songs, but they'll also perform original family compositions. Their music is designed to showcase the community experience that brings together friends, families, and neighbors. The Kidcot station is located at the exit to O Canada, inside the shop in, in the hotel. And unfortunately, there are no character meet and greets currently. Characters from Brother Bear were once greeting guests, but Canada doesn't often appear in Disney movies, so you don't see a lot of meet and greets around the area. The biggest attraction in, the, in Canada is the Circle Vision movie O Canada. Sure. It seems like it's simply a movie, but the technology behind it is nothing short of amazing. I'll have to cover that on another podcast. Now, keep in mind that a crew of eight people spent more than two years researching, photographing, and editing a film called O Canada. The filming encompassed all the Canadian provinces during all four seasons of the year. Now, this is the second film to be shown in Canada. The first film concentrated on the beautiful scenery and climate changes in Canada. But after several years, as beautiful as it was, the Canadian government wanted a more updated film reflecting more of the people, culture, and lifestyles of modern Canada. So on August 31st, 2007, a new updated film was shown. It also features a comical narration by Canadian comedian Martin Short and Eva Avila, the winner of Canada's Canadian Idol. And she sings, Canada, You're a Lifetime Journey. Footage was filmed in Calgary, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, and Niagara Falls, and combined with the current images provided by the Canadian Tourism Commission. The film includes the nation's capital, Ottawa, with its parliament buildings and Rideau Canal, Toronto, with its nightlife and film festivals, and Quebec City, with the cradle of the French civilization in Canada. Also mentioned, the not-so-famous but artfully named small towns of Moose Jaw and Medicine Hat. The people of Canada are featured in outdoor activities including skating, whitewater rafting, and hockey. And now on behalf of Walt Disney World and the Canadian Tourism Commission, I present to you, O Canada. Narrator. Thank you. <laughs> that French. 
I can show you the real Canada. My Canada. And there's lots to see. So let's go, shall we? First stop, Niagara Falls. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Marty, those are in America. And you'd be half right. This half, however, is in Canada. The spectacular Horseshoe Falls. wonder to another. Check out the Bay of Funday in New Brunswick, the largest tide in the world. Now this is low tide, obviously, when you can actually walk on the seafloor. But at high tide, you'd be 50 feet underwater. So time your walks very carefully, okay? From the east coast, we zoom across six time zones to the west coast. So keep your hands and feet inside the country at all times. Bouchard Gardens, inspiring visitors from around the world for over 100 years. But if you like your plants a little bigger, take a stroll through nearby Cathedral Grove. Some of the trees here are more than 800 years old. With sites like these, I'm sure it comes as no surprise that Canadians love the great outdoors. Especially these Canadians. I suppose the polar bears are a bit of a giveaway that we do get a little snow in Canada. But you know what? It doesn't slow us down. Not one bit. Check it out the next time you accidentally get a Canadian dime in your change. 
treasure nature and the great outdoors. And with such colorful small towns as Moose Jaw and Medicine Hat, some people might think we're rustic backwoods folks. But in fact, most Canadians live in cities. Come on, I'll show you. Here's beautiful Victoria, British Columbia. The architecture of this charming city is so inspired by its British heritage that you would swear you were in England. Victoria's nearest neighbor is Vancouver. This diverse cosmopolitan city is nestled between a rainforest, coastal mountains, and the Pacific Ocean. It's also home to Canada's exciting film industry. Now that's talent.
from our native people to our newest immigrants, we treasure that diversity. But no matter who we are, we're all proud to be Canadian. This would be a perfect place for a song. I think so, don't you?
hate to miss it. I need help. I hope everyone enjoyed our tour across Canada. Please gather all your personal belongings and exit through the doors to your left. Thanks and have a And I love the joke about turn left at the ball. The movie is accessed through a pathway as you pass the Victoria Gardens and you go over a small bridge. Now, just a note that this movie is 14 minutes in length and there is no seating in the theater, just long handrails. That's because things are happening all around you in 360 degrees. But whatever you do, don't miss the movie. It's very well done and the scenery is spectacular and you get a taste of history because of the Circle Vision 360 degree movie that you're seeing. And again, more on that in a future podcast. Now, I know that some people uh, have trouble with the 360-degree movie. It does make, tend to make some people dizzy. I suggest standing near the back or looking down or closing your eyes if you have trouble with it. Remember that you're not moving, and the lean rails are there to kind of help you a little bit so that you do feel a little more comfortable. Now let's talk about drinking around the world. I know some people enjoy sampling adult beverages from the countries around World Showcase. There's really only one place to get a drink, other than if you're planning at eating at La Cellier, the restaurant. And that's the popcorn cart outside of the pavilion. There, in addition to popcorn and soda, you can find Moosehead Lager, Moosehead Light, and and Labatt's Blue on draft. Now, every country has food. Some only quick service, some table service. Here at the Canadian Pavilion, it's one of the most popular eateries on property. It's Le Cellier Steakhouse, known in English as The Cellar. Now, let's take a quick history trip back, because the current eatery that opened with Canada was totally different. The restaurant in 1982 was just called Le Cellier. And it was a buffet-style setup and referred to as a buffeteria, which combined the elements of a buffet and a cafeteria. I ate there once, but have not been back since its re-theming. The buffeteria never quite caught on, and Disney realized that an update was in order. The restaurant closed in 1996, and after the complete makeover, reopened on July 20, 1997, along with the new name, the Le Cellier Steakhouse. Now it's a table-service restaurant that's themed after a Canadian wine cellar. And the detail and stonework are amazing. New touches are the light-up menus, making it easier to see in the subdued lighting, the massive stone arches, wall sconces, chandeliers, and freestanding candelabra, and many small wine caves give a feeling of the comfort and coziness throughout. Though, you have to admit, it's a little bit on the small side. The dining room is also divided up into different provinces in Canada. So when, you, when you're seated in Le Cellier, ask your server which province you're seated in and see what he or she says. Food offerings include seafood and steaks, the infamous pretzel bread, along with popular Canadian wines and beer. They also have fun desserts like chocolate mousse that looks like uh, a mousse. The restaurant is actually located inside the Hotel du Canada. Le Cellier is one of the smallest restaurants in Epcot and does fill up quickly, so you want to get your reservations early. And typically, this one will fill up at the 180-day mark. Now let's take a minute and talk about what nearly was and what actually was. Original designs called for the Canadian Tourism Information Centre to host an exhibit where the homes are located on the upper level on the British side. But other than a token appearance, that never came to pass. Now, I mentioned earlier that the O Canada show was replaced some years ago. The original was similar, but perhaps a little dated. After all, it was filmed in 1979. There were more than 50 scenes of people, places, and events in the movie, including Gulf Island, British Columbia, the Calgary Stampede, a toboggan run in Quebec City, changing of the guard at Parliament, fife and drums in Ontario, and the Vancouver Harbor, and much, much more. And I distinctly remember them showing the Bay of Fundy at some point along the way, too. And it was really neat to see that. But anyway, that's what it used to be. 
Now here's a short audio clip to remind you of what the narration sounded like as compared with what it's like today. We are people of Canada. People of many origins. People from different parts of a country that is both vast and varied. From the Maritimes, along the rocky coasts of the North Atlantic. From Quebec, with its French heritage and joie de vivre. From Ontario, the most populated and industrialized province of all. From the plains and prairies of the heartland, where we tend vast fields of grain. From the mountains and the shores of the west, and the tundra of the far north. But most of all, we are Canadians. We bid you welcome. Journey with us now through the color and the contrast of our magnificent land, where the past and the future are an inseparable part of the present. The ocean and everything about her be part of life down east in the maritimes. Some of us still harvest the waters like our fathers did, and our sons will do the same. And we lives by the tides, too, especially round Fundy Bay where they can run 30, 40 feet from low water to high. Oh, yeah, we've known to see in some mighty proud ships. But there's none prouder than our own blue nose. In the province du Québec, our largest city is Montréal. Ah, Montréal, que c'est beau Montréal. Very cosmopolitan, a center for the commerce and the arts, most modern in every way. But in her heart... She still remains all that is French-Canadian. Only a stone's throw from any city in Canada, there's the great outdoors. You can be part of nature out here and see life in the wild all around you. When it comes roundup time in Canada, we do some downright unusual herding, eh? And we got the latest ways of doing it, too. But we haven't forgot the old ways, either. Out west, there's no gradual change from plains to mountains, eh? The Canadian Rockies rise straight up like a granite wall. And all of a sudden, you're into some of the prettiest scenery you'll ever see. When winter comes to Canada, it doesn't come gently. But it does bring special rewards. Times when days are crisp and clear, when shadows are sharp and sunlight sparkles. Times for sport in the ice and snow. With winter's end, the spring thaw brings out a special beauty in our cities. And you can see how each has its own character. In Ottawa, it's gothic spires, turreted roofs, parks and trees. In Toronto, it's steel and glass skyscrapers clustered along the lakeshore with a single tower, the tallest one in the world, dominating everything. It's almost like an island in the sky. And as the sun drops lower, there's a view that takes your breath away. As darkness descends, Vancouver becomes a jeweled city nestled between the mountains and the sea. And Victoria, with its lovely inner harbor, as sedate and dignified during the day as the queen it was named for, becomes a fairyland when the sun goes down. The nation that is Canada is a most unusual mixture, a potpourri of contrasting ethnic backgrounds, of colorful pageantry, of long-established traditions. 
all different, but all uniquely Canadian. Oh, Canada, all this and more is our land, from the mountains to the seas, from the prairies to the tundra. This is her fair domain. Now, as you might guess, this original film was not well received by Canadian visitors. And the Canadian government really did kind of hate it because it was a stereotypical view of Canada and the people of Canada. Everything was dated about it. And for 10 years, they lobbied to change the film into something more modern and more current. It was generally derided in Canada. In fact, at one point, somebody called it a Walmart commercial. Someone else said it's a Mickey Mouse presentation, but we're not talking about the actual rodent here. And you get the idea that it really wasn't something that people enjoyed. So that's why they updated the film. The original film was narrated by Corey Burton. Burton is a versatile and veteran Disney voice actor. He has to his credits things such as Ludwig von Drake, voicing Captain Hook in several of the Disney attractions. At one point, he even channeled his best Paul Frees in order to do some additional work for the Haunted Mansion. He's an amazing and versatile voice actor who's been doing a lot of work for the Disney company. And in fact, in the beginning part of the new film, where you hear somebody start talking about Canada and it's snowy and it's blizzardy before Martin Sharp comes on and, and tells him to shut up, it's actually Corey Burton again. In a clever little play, they brought Corey Burton back to do the opening sequence so Martin Short could tell him that that's enough of that. I hope you enjoyed this look at the Canada Pavilion here at Epcot. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. And just one last request before I let you go. If you can, please support this podcast in any way you like. I have three ways of supporting me. Number one is the easiest, and it's free. Just head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast and give me a quick review. Tell other people how great you think this podcast is, and it'll help grow the podcast. The second way is to go ahead and purchase one of the apps I have for sale over at DisneyPodcast.net or DisneyWorldPodcast.net. I create apps for iOS devices, so for Apple devices, your iPhones and your iPads, and I've got a couple that are Disney-related that you might enjoy. So take a look at those and see if any one of them might be interesting to you. And the third way is, I've recently set up a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash DisneyView. And if you like, just make a quick financial contribution. I'm happy to continue doing this regardless, but if you like the show and you'd like to contribute in some way, I'm always happy to take a small contribution. I'm not, there's no requirement. I'm not asking for much. But if you do give me a contribution, I'm happy to give you a shout out on this podcast in the future. Hey, thanks very much. And I hope you enjoy my podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 